For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning, everyone. For new people, I'm Taigen Layton, the guiding Dharma teacher at Ancient Dragon Zengate. I'm very happy to have with us today, giving the talk, our Sado teacher, Paul Zengyu Paul Disco. Uh, Sado is a monastic position for a resident visiting teacher. Uh, Paul has been uh, very present in our Zoom world here at Ancient Dragon. Uh, Paul was a direct disciple of Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, who founded our lineage at San Francisco Zen Center. He also went, uh, what, he was sent by Suzuki Roshi to uh, practice for five years study in Japan, studying carpentry, uh, and uh, is now a, a temple architect and designer, and as well as a carpenter. Um, and also is, um, well, is a Dharma uncle of mine. Um, and um, I'm glad that you can come here from uh, uh, Oakland for, the, for this, Paul. Uh, many of you have heard him here. Um, some of you uh, interacted with him back in the old, old days when we had a temple at Irving Park Road, and he visited us. Anyway, Paul, thank you for coming and speaking to us today. Good morning. Can you all hear me? Yes. Thank you. Um, I'm actually here in Monterey, California with a family gathering that um, people have come from the Midwest and from other places. And uh, so I'm actually speaking to you from a motel room in the overlooking Monterey Bay. Um, I was a little shaky about the, uh, the, the connection, but it seems to be working just fine. Um, so I'd like to start at the beginning, which was not something that I first learned about. When I, when I came in 67, uh, I showed up at Tassajara sort of on a, on a, on a whim, not really a whim, but just, just almost by accident. Um, and I hadn't, I knew almost nothing about Buddhism at the time. I, uh, I, I was interested in Taoism. I thought that was I thought Taoism was the uh, was the, was the true the true teaching, um, and Buddhism seemed like this thing that was sort of this regimented thing that I didn't really. It seemed too much like organized religion and like some sort of some sort of uh, rigid, rigid pattern that didn't seem appropriate. But anyway, I showed up at Tassajara, met some of the of the sangha there. And then I met Suzuki Roshi there, and I realized immediately that I, 
that, that this is somebody that I can learn from. So my, my study of Buddhism began with almost a clean slate as far as my understanding of what was going on. And I got there just, just as just as the first practice period was starting. So so there was a, a large group of people showed up a few weeks after I was showed up and uh, we started the first practice period at Tassahara. Um, but today, I would like to talk about the, uh, Buddhism from the beginning, or or from the not there is no beginning, but from the the four the four noble truths. You know, we say we say we say the beginning, but in Buddhism, of course, it doesn't have a uh, doesn't have a a uh, creation. Myth or creation story like like the uh, children of Abraham do, there, and um, I don't know about any. Anyway, that, those are the those are the three religions that are most that, are, that I know the most about, and um, and even even the even the, even the, the the Vedic tradition. I don't I don't really know what it's whether it has a founding myth or not. But anyway, Buddhism does not have a founding story. And, and we say the seven Buddhas before Buddha, but just indicating that it runs into the, it runs into the, it, it, it continues on. And, and there's many Buddhas to come after, after the, the our historical Shakyamuni. Um, so it's not, it's not a, there's no, be, there's no beginning and no end as, as, um, Jokshu Kwan likes to say Jokshu Kwan was one of Zukurish's oldest disciples and went off on his own to start a temple in Sonoma Mountain called Ganjoji. And is somebody that I've worked with over the years also. And no beginning and no end is one of the one of his phrases that he uses. Um, anyway, so we all know that that anybody that's even slightly acquainted with Buddhism knows that that the first noble truth is life is suffering, which seems a little harsh, but I think if we stop and think about it, we know we know that there's there's a truth, there's truth in this. Um, some of us, some of us, especially here in the United States, where we have so much of the world's bounty has been given to us, we have we have um, the, the natural the natural bounty of the soil and the and the and the, the and the um, all the minerals that we that are here un, un, untamed, untamed from earliest ages, and then we have an, an immigrant population that is basically picked the best and the brightest from all over the world to come here and and set up business as 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 uh, in one form or another, and then we have all of the indigenous people and the people that came here as slaves and the people that migrated here from 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 basically basically the other parts of the of the of the Americas and they they have they have a much more difficult time of course because um it's the the the, the dominant the dominant group or is the, the what group that used to be dominant uh, sucks up all the oxygen of the room and and, and um, keeps people keeps other people at a distance in order to to help themselves be special. But so, but even among even among those privileged people, which is a lot of us, 
um, there's suffering. We have suffering of one kind or another, and, and we all, no matter what, we all have death to deal with. Um, so I don't think there's too much argument in the, on the on the concept of suffering. But, but then the question is, what causes the suffering? And, and basically, it is um, not being not being one with, with what is but not being one with what is happening. And wanting things to be different than they are, wanting wanting to wanting to see the wanting to experience the world in a way that isn't happening in our isn't isn't happening, and this can be caused by things that are totally imaginary. Uh, we can imagine that our best friend said something to us that made us that, that made us feel bad, we, or it could be something very very physical, like an auto like an auto wreck when we you know, injured ourselves in a, by, with an accident. But that doesn't really make any difference whether it's so-called real pain or imaginary pain or delusionary pain or or what the what the cause, whether it's karmic pain, whether it's something something that's from, from our ancient karma, or whether it's which all things are, of course, but anyway, it doesn't really matter whether whether it's delusionary or not, because in a sense that all of all of our perceptions are delusionary, but it does matter how we deal with them, and that's where the 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 third noble truth, where, where things start to, to splinter out, and different groups, different kinds of Buddhism, different different teachings of Buddhism, have different ways of dealing with this question. Um, this is this this is this is an area that that where, where Buddhism becomes more diverse, and over time has changed, and many and many areas have had different different ways of dealing with it. But but the way that I was taught by by Suzuki Roshi was that it's that's the, it was the concept of emptiness. That was the that was the main that was the, his main teaching right from the very beginning. Every morning we would chant the Heart Sutra, which is basically a sutra of emptiness. <clears throat> and we would chant it many times in Sino-Japanese, uh, usually usually with great intensity. Um, and so the the the, te- the teaching of emptiness was was, and then he started lecturing on form and emptiness. That was that was his first one of his first lecture series was on form and emptiness. So he went directly into that into that point. He didn't. There was very almost no, almost no, no talk about precepts. Um, the very, the only thing I can remember him saying was in the very beginning. He said, "There's two things. There's two things not to do at Tassahara. Don't smoke marijuana and don't catch the fish." Because there was a stream there that had lots of little trout in it. Very the Tassahara Creek. Anyway, I can't remember any other any other rules besides that, and of course, follow the schedule. The schedule was everything. Follow the schedule, <clears throat> and um, this was a diverse group of people. Many of them were artists, and, and of one form or another. Certainly, a lot of them were ones that were counterculture people. That, and there also were people that 
people from many from all over the world, actually, or at least all over the northern, well, he was some from South America, but um, who were questing about the meaning of life in one way or another. These are all people that that had some deep question about what it meant to be alive. Um, it was it drew it was it was the first monastic Buddhist monastic setting in in the Western Hemisphere, and it drew people from all over, and it drew uh, drew a lot of very uh, dynamic people actually. Uh, so it was an interesting group of people, and some of them were a, a little a little uh, unruly, shall we say? <laughs> they were they uh, they were not. Anyway, there was a wide spectrum of, of, of personalities, but but Suzuki Roshi did not make any distinction um, between a somebody that, that that was you know a, a model student and somebody that was a, a bad actor. And actually, the, the, the bad actors got more attention in some ways than the than the model students. Um, so that was that was not that was not the issue. The issue was to was the issue was to follow the schedule and zazen, 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 and to and to experience emptiness through zazen. Um, he did have little. He did have. He did try little teachings. You know the, the you know the, the the nudge the nudge system of social engineering for you to sort of push people gently in a direction of which they can, where they can discover the, the, the true meaning of things. Um, I know he had us, he had us take, deal with the garbage or deal with with the trash in a very organized way, tied into bundles and, and set it aside as if it was a valued treasure. Um, that was one of the things I remember early on that, that struck me. Also, the, the food, to, to keep the food was, was very simple in the beginning. In the beginning, we had um, it was vegetarian, of course, but we had when we had the oatmeal in the morning, we had uh, a, a milk and honey with it, as well as the gamasio, the the, the, soy, the, the uh, sesame uh, salt, and um, it, it was it, it sort of turned into a sort of a, a, a gourmet breakfast with the with the milk and honey. And one one day, it looks like maybe Paul's connection has frozen. Hopefully, he will return. If you can hear me. Paul, we can't hear you, uh, but let's hope the connection returns. I'm going to fill in, in the meantime, until Paul returns, with some sh- short stories about Suzuki Roshi uh, from a new book called Zen is Right Now, um, uh, edited by David Chadwick, who was also at Tassajara Monastery in the very early days. Dharma brother of uh, Paul, who was ordained by uh, by Suzuki Roshi. So I'm hoping that uh, Paul will return and finish the story of the oatmeal. But 
I'll just, uh, these are sh very short. Um, uh, and I'll just, and I'll just read them and maybe say something about them until Paul returns, hopefully. Here's one. At a Zen Center picnic in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, Suzuki arrived in his robes. A baby blanket on the ground caught his eye. He lay down on it, rolled up in it, and just lay there a while. So that's that story. And Suzuki Roshi was very direct and simple and just appreciated whatever showed up. This is an aspect of Zen. And it's also an aspect of his playfulness. A student asked if there was some special meaning, special reason or meaning when, when we hit the bells. So this is a question that's come up in our Sangha too. Suzuki answered, to hit the bell means to produce an independent Buddha, one after another. One independent Buddha appears, gong. Gong, the next Buddha appears, and the prior Buddha disappears. So one by one, striking the bells, we produce Buddhas and Buddha after Buddhas and Buddhas and Buddha after another. This is our practice. Hi, Paul, are you back? Can you hear me? Paul, yes, can you hear me? I, I, I'm, I don't know where I went, but anyway, I, I am back. Well, that's good. I, just during the intermission, I was I told a couple of stories from uh, your Dharma brother David Chadwick's new book. Zen is right now little stories about Suzuki Roshi. Oh yeah. But we were waiting well, to. David was it. definitely one of those. David was definitely one of those characters that showed up at the, at the very beginning, and he's still he's still he's still hanging in there with with. with Suzuki teaching, <clears throat> even from Bali. Um, so, Paul, we, we started the story about the oatmeal, but we didn't hear the end of it. Oh, okay. Well, the oatmeal was that he, that since we forgot the milk and honey with the oatmeal, he spoke up and said that they're so glad that we had realized that the flavor of oatmeal by itself was, it was so much was, was, was so much better to experience the oatmeal fully as itself, rather than then covered up with, uh, with 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 the flavor of milk and honey, so we never had milk and honey again in the center. That was the end of that. But but that was that was this way. His he had this very way of what, what they call a nudge in in, I don't know, in in social science. I mean, just to, to push us gently in the direction that he thought where where understanding would occur. Um, but there was very little except for drawing out a position to follow the schedule system of basically of six hours of meditation, six hours of work, um, six hours of eating and studying and, and, um, and, and, um, time off and then six hours of sleep. So, um, it was, it was a fairly tight schedule, but not, not, um, and people is back to, uh, 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 enjoyed in it. Um, and we were 
there were there were there were a number of older people there, but many of us were quite young at the time. Um, anyway, the 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 concept of emptiness was was the teaching. It was the teaching that 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 was the main teaching that we received at that time. Um, and the form the form was emptiness, and emptiness is form. And form is form, and emptiness is emptiness. Nothing much was said at that time about the fifth state of jumping clear of the many and the one, or neither form nor emptiness, or however it wants to be stated. That that the so-called fifth stage, which was at that time was considered a, um, a taboo subject. You didn't talk about it. That was that was that was that was the hush hush thing that was whispered, but you didn't talk about because the stages were also considered a taboo subject. You weren't supposed to think of it as stages. Um, anyway, so the 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 it was not emphasized, but but the 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 fourth noble truth of of of, of, of how we live our life was not was not talked about that much. It was it was not. It was not, there was not, we did, we did the full moon ceremony. We would re- re- recite the, uh, the, um, the precepts, but it was never really, it was, there was not much energy put on it. On it. <clears throat> Suzuki Roshi talked about the precepts in the form, I mean, the, I, the way I remember it anyway, because I had my own vested interest in, in, in thinking about it. Um, was that not to make two, not to make, not to separate things between you and others, and and um, uh, the good and bad, or right and wrong, or um, tasty and not tasty, or um, like and dislike. Uh, as long as as long as you didn't divide things up into 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 those two into those categories, then there you were. You are not breaking the precepts, um, and then the other, the, the, the corollary actions that came along came along with that was 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 avoiding picking and choosing. If you don't if you don't pick and choose, you, you then you don't you're not. If you don't pick and choose, what you what you when you have choice when you're faced with a with a with a, with a, with, with a, with the situation, because then that also did not break the precepts. Um, it's 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 there's there's I mean there's there's these are not 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 foolproof concepts, but based, but they were the basic outline of, of the teaching of that time. But I was always interested in in what in in what. Um, what it was, what it was, what it was to be a human being. That was the question. What, what does it mean to be a human being? That was that was the question I had as a young person, and that's what I thought Taoism was going to teach me something about. I, I grew up in a Marxist family, so I didn't get any Christian upbringing at all. I was, was Christianity was considered um, a corrupt or tool of the oppressor, <laughs> and. Judaism somehow was was considered okay because 
the Jews at that time were depressed people along with black black people and 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 Hispanics were all considered oppressed people in in our society and they got they 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 got the thumbs up they were so I was actually sent to a to, to Jewish kinder shul for a while because there was Jews were part of the the the, the group the, the approved group but anyway as a, in my early teens I found Marxism to be way too materialistic and also not dealing with the real issues of life which is human human interaction um, it was way too mechanical way too scientific way too material and didn't really deal with how people treat each other so that's so that led me to think that led, that led me to, to, to the to Taoist to the Taoist thinking but there was no there was no practice there was no Taoist practice it was purely of scraps of, of ancient writing and and that, and that's there was no there's no no daily practice no and certainly no teachers that you that were visible so it was kind of kind of a, a dead end in that way but um, anyway I, I I found that the that, that when I met Suzuki Roshi I realized that there was actually a teaching and there was and there was a practice, and that Zen was actually uh, highly influenced by Taoism in China, as that, that form of Buddhism was highly influenced by Taoism. Um, <clears throat> anyway, the form and emptiness was, was the main is teaching that that there's this, but there's also the question of whether whether you are saving yourself or whether you're saving beings. Now we chant, we chant to save all sentient beings. Um, but what does that, what does that really mean? Because you know, on one hand, we are totally alone in this world. You all are totally imaginary in, in my world and I'm imaginary in your world. And we all are t- individuals by ourselves that have to deal with our our karmic fate um, on ourselves um, I know when I was living in Japan and Suzuki Roshi had died in America while I was gone and his widow came to visit Japan and she came and spent some time with me in Kyoto I took her around to some of the places she wanted to see and I tried to commiserate with her about losing her husband about him you know about you know, say something about I'm sorry that she lost her her, her her husband and she in her usual very terse way she said well you know we're always alone <laughs> anyway she uh, she was not the <laughs> and in a sense in a sense that's very true for her especially because she was a widow with children and he was a widow um and, and it's a, apparently his first marriage was a very it was much it was a love a very much a love marriage that's what people say i don't know i wasn't there i didn't experience it but anyway they they um they got they they got together later much later 
And so they had somewhat separate lives, although they lived together as husband and wife. When, when he came to America, he came on his own for the first five years or so. He lived on his own. And she came and joined him later. Um, but then that's, that has to do with the Japanese concept of marriage. It's, it's a little different than we are used to here. Anyway, so that's the one hand. The one hand is we're always alone. That's the, we're totally connected to everyone and everything. And we, and we are not whatever we do, whatever we do, it affects everybody else in the world. You know, like, like that concept of the butterfly and the a, a hurricane in the, in the Caribbean. That, you know, that, 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 that concept somehow, because a lot of people, they like the idea of the, of the butterfly, the butterfly in the distant land causing something to happen somewhere else. Um, Strange, or I don't know. Maybe it's just the people I talk to, but I, that, that seems like it, like it's highly accepted that that understanding of, of, of all of our lives being totally interconnected. Um, so that whatever whatever you know, if you want to affect the world, you you affect yourself, and that affects the whole world. Um, but that's that's you know that. The, the way the, the the way the way to to relate to to, to the universe <clears throat> it's always a question and it's a question in this song that's come up quite often about what is our responsibility to to other members of the community of the greater community um, and there's always a temptation to want to save them or help them or somehow somehow um, somehow fix their, their their situation in the world which is a dangerous a dangerous a, a great idea but also has many dangers to it number one it's you're imposing your ideas on somebody else and number two you're stepping outside your realm of of you're, 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 you're stepping into the realm of picking and choosing, which is fraught with many dangers. Uh, not to say that it's not a valuable thing to do, and not to say that there aren't many, many injustices in the world that need to be remedied. Um, uh, that's, that certainly, certainly is the case. And it's interesting politically. Buddhism politically throughout history has never really been um, has never been that involved politically. Um, there were times when the the monks at Mount Hiei, for example, the Tendai monks, were used by the imperial the imperial uh, government as a as a as an enforcer as enforcers, and there's been times when. Um, they have sided with various different groups within side of Japan, for example. Um, but 
And then there's been, you know, times in history in India, there were states where the where the ruler had used its principles for, and and for good in most cases, apparently from the, what history teaches us. But mostly, Buddhism ignores politics and and the the governing the governing powers uh, um, rule with, without without. Uh, Without necessarily consulting uh, the, the the Buddhist Buddhist principles, which is which is always a problem. How to have how to have a a a society that is that is ruled ruled by by spiritual precepts at the same time as political politically active. Um, especially, it is hard. In this day and age, when we are so beset with um, with with material concerns and the accumulation of material objects, and where materialism is set on a very high shelf, and everyone looks up to it, uh, even 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 people that are on the spiritual path are still caught by by material desires. It's very hard not to be in this culture. It's very hard not to be totally caught up in materialism or at least to at least to respond to it it's it's um if, if you don't have certain material objects you're you're it's hard for people to take you seriously if you don't have a car and you don't have you know a change of clothes and you don't have a, a permanent abode um uh you know that's that's um well, there's this. There's you join the ranks of the homeless, which is which is becoming even more, 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 more of a, of a population in this society than than uh, ever before. I live where I am in Oakland. My shop is in Oakland. We have homeless people that have been there. There's one one woman that's been there for over ten years, camped outside the walls of of, of, of my compound. Um, people have gotten to know her. She's gotten to know us and. And I've had numerous people, numerous friends in the homeless community. Some, some for over twenty-five years. Um, still, still, still see them. Although one of them, one of the ones that has been I've known the longest now has a place to live, but he still, he still doesn't have a job. Just kind of wanders the street, doing wanders the street, doing little things here and there. Um, so is that is that is that right livelihood? Is being homeless right livelihood? I mean, it, it follows all of the Buddhist precepts. Um, there's not have no possessions, uh, no permanent abode. Um, basically, begging for your for your sustenance. Um, I think that. I think that I don't think that there's not there's not that many people that would voluntarily uh, do that, and that's certainly not considered a high spiritual uh, um, um, plane in in our in our in our culture. Um, and and many of the many of the people that are homeless are are not. Are not that happy. 
It's not, it's not it's not some spiritual high plane that they're living on. They're 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 beset by by many problems, and they're fearful and 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 hostile with each other and hostile hostile with the environment, and they're not not what you call great shepherds of the environment either. They they they're they they're not. That's not, not not part of their itinerary to take care of the environment. <clears throat> Although I must say, since there are no toilets, the trees on the on the street where they live is, have, have grown greatly and are are, are very uh, very 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 luxurious. <laughs> anyway, I've I have come to the conclusion personally that that right livelihood has something to do with. With taking care of the of your everyday life in a way that is not harmful to others, um, that was that was the, the main thing. The main of the of the of the of the eightfold of the eightfold path. The, the that was the one that the, that that I paid the most attention to because because I'm basically a maker of nature by nature and. Um, that I, so I, I have been putting all my energy in the last few years in developing a kind of a kind of livelihood where people have direct direct participation in the making of things for other people, and that they share them with other people. Um, uh, it's very difficult in the midst of of the corporate of the corporate con, corporate conglomerate. Con, Agglomeration of, of the of grouping together of all activities under under larger and larger corporations, and then find faster and, and and faster and cheaper ways of doing things, of making food, of 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 making clothing, of making um, automobiles, of making whatever. It's um, being taken further and further away from the human realm and into the machine realm and into the financial realm. Um, anyway, this is this is the dilemma that we find ourselves in this day, and this is something that I am still searching for uh, a question of how to deal with it, and uh, I would like to continue that search with you all. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Um, so we have time now for responses questions, comments. Um, so, David Ray, could you... If you're not listening, raise your hand. You can go to the participant window on the bottom and click that, and there's a raise hand function at the bottom of that, so you can uh, uh, let, let us know if you're interested in speaking. So, please, comments, questions, responses. I see Aaron's hand. Hi, good morning, Paul. Thank you very much um, for your wide-ranging talk and a lot about the history um, about uh, Soto practice in the U.S. 
but um i was uh your your last comments were um the ones that were most in my mind at the moment uh about right livelihood and um i've been reading a lot about uh um circular economies and so-called care economies and and so i was thinking about when i chose um a career in law i had you know at lofty aspirations of saving the world but wound up just being a uh, a patent lawyer um greasing the wheels of corporate american you know uh intellectual property and so i i i never felt particularly comfortable in that livelihood and uh even though you know i i didn't do anything immoral so i was just wondering if you could say something about for those of us that have the privilege of getting uh further education and so forth um i i i my thought is well i wonder what your thought is about you know how could privileged people um make the right choice uh and i used my example of law but it could also be your example of 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 carpentry as well building mcmansions versus building i don't know what what your carpentry practice is like maybe you could say more about it yes um uh yes i i have the same problem you do um, I, I studied temple building, you know, an ancient, you know, a, a craft with a, a, at least 15, well, in Japan, a 1,500-year history. And going back to China, it's, it's a direct transition from China. Um, and uh, uh, But when I, came, when I came back to the United States, there was not a whole lot of interest in traditional traditional Buddhist architecture, at least not in the United States. And um, I ended up I ended up doing some temples in Europe, and I ended up doing uh, a, 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 a temples in in America for non for immigrants. But um, I ended up mostly building uh, palaces for rich people. So that's, that's, that's I, I understand your, your your dilemma entirely, but but at, the, but at the same time though I had the advantage of it being basically an art form, and I could employ I could employ many people to to exercise this craft and to create something very beautiful and very meaningful at the same time that it was going to be for, for the glory of. Larry Ellison of Oracle Software, for example, or some, <laughs> some such person. Um, um, it's it's like I said, it's, it's very hard. How are you going to in this in this this age of and this time and this location of intense material uh, material uh, involvement? How are you going to do? How to do something meaningful is very difficult. I have this compound in Oakland that's two and a half acres. And that there's like 30 different makers there doing making things with one or two people, small scale manufacture of all kinds, everything from food to, to, to sake, to perfume, to lumber, to, you know, as a wide fertilizer, uh, 
mm-hmm. insect insects for food. I mean, we have a wide wide range of of activities there, and oh. they're they're try and we try our best to have a circular economy where the waste from one feeds the feeds the process of the other, and and they and they work together. And there is a book called the Donut Economy. I don't know if you've come across it. Yeah, the Donut yeah. Economy makes makes a lot of sense also. But um, anyway, thank you, thank you very much. If I may, um, uh, our director Douglas is also an attorney who I believe deals in intellectual property. Uh, and I don't know, Douglas, if you have any responses to Aaron, to put you on the spot. <laughs> um, well, you know, intellectual property is a, is a, ser- is a collection of rights and, and principles that can be used to, you know, protect creators of, of content or of ideas, it can also be like any other property that, you know, fixing property rights that are used uh, like other assets for good and for evil. It can be, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> so I don't think that, I, I don't think I'm prepared to say that, you know, intellectual property is inherently evil or that uh, I always thought that the practice of property was, was pretty interesting. And I guess, Aaron, aren't you also, are you a patent lawyer? I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a certain amount of, uh, of um, reward in practicing that craft. It can be very creative in a way. So, I think it's just difficult when you're uh, the practice of law. Lawyers are expensive, and uh, as a result, the people who get to hire lawyers are the people you would expect, and they're using uh, they're using the lawyers uh, to create assets that'll be used in their business. And so you sort of have to say, okay, who are my clients going to be? What businesses am I going to support? So. Um, Thank you, yeah, Douglas. Yeah, I just ended up making these decisions on a case-by-case basis. I think I'm going to go out to Oakland and work for, for Paul uh, <laughs> breeding insects. Yeah. Thank you, Douglas and Aaron. Uh, other comments or questions for Paul? Responses? Ed's hand is up. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. When you first walked on to Tassajara, was that, did you pass through the same place that you so many years later built a gate at? Uh, yes. And I was wondering if I could share my screen of a picture of the gate. Is that something I can do? I, you can't, as far as I'm concerned, I think you have to ask David about that question. But David Ray, can you hear me? You are now enabled. Ah. Oh. So that's under construction. I don't, that's not the completed gate. 
is 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 the land there hilly because i live in a very flat part of the country and was there a reason why the gate was built there and i think these questions relate to your talk and thank you for your talk okay um uh that that gate is as you say is under construction um uh, I'm not quite sure what your question is. Is when you're on that land, are there certain parts of the land where you can see more where you are physically than in other parts of the land? It's it's in does ours in a very steep canyon with very high mountains on all, all sides. You know, it's um, twenty two thousand foot peaks all around it. It's down at the bottom of the canyon, and this is a narrow. There's a narrow road. It comes down 14 miles of dirt road that climbs over a 5,000-foot peak and then descends into this canyon. And this is the gate that you first meet when you come down to the beginning of the, of the uh, compound. And so it's almost an actual laboratory of sight and place. So in some places you can see vast expanses and others very little. You're quite enclosed. Well, you're quite enclosed, yes. Okay. Thank you. I, I want to add that uh, Paul was being modest about uh, his things he's built. He's, he also, for people who know, at the Green Gulch Guest House, the Tassajara Zendo, and other temples are around the United States. And he has a book called Zen Architecture, which is very interesting. So I just wanted to add, throw that in. Um, other comments, responses. There's a lot, uh, as as Aaron said, Paul's talk was wide ranging, and there's a lot we could respond to. But uh, Douglas has his hand up. Thank you. I don't know if this is really on topic, but I'm interested in the idea that you you just appeared at Tassajara without any experience, and you dived into a practice period with hours and hours of zazen every day. <laughs> Uh, sort of zero to 60 in five seconds. And uh, what was that like? <laughs> um, well, it was a long time ago, number one. <laughs> and and um, I think, I think the hardest, I mean, I mean there was, there's this term Tongario. Have you heard the term Tongario? Yes, and it's, a, it's a sort of the initiation period, and uh, uh, it, I had to, I was I was asked to sit Tongario after I'd been there for about a week or so. <laughs> I had very little, I mean, very little, very little prep for it, and um, that was that was quite difficult to sit because that's just sitting all day long without without you know no. You sit and you just have meals, and then you have a break after meals. But then you come back and sit again. It's just sitting all day long from from early morning to late at night. Um, and uh, it was very, it, it was very, it was probably it was very influential in my in my in my zazen life, my meditation life. I developed certain techniques during that period to. To survive and to and to make it through, I was not very limber, so sitting there cross-legged was not easy. And I had um, um, anyway. Um, 
it may actually have crippled me for the rest of my Buddhist career. <laughs> Thinking back on it now, because I came up with certain techniques to uh, to make it possible uh, that probably were not not were somewhat detrimental. But anyway, um, it was it was a very vibrant. It was it was it was a very vibrant. It was very alive. There was there was many interesting people there. Uh, it seemed like the thing, the thing. It seemed like what was happening. I don't know. Back, you know, back in the '60s, you would go somewhere and you say, you know, where's it happening? You know, what's 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 the scene? You know, and this was obviously the scene. This was definitely what was happening. Thank you. I, I might just add, Tangario does not include kinhin or walking meditation between periods of zazen. You just sit through. So, and but also. Um, 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 just for anybody who thinks they might try that, it's not possible anymore to just show up at Tassajara and become a resident. They, they now, now it's expected that you have a, a, a lot of preparation at, at, uh, at other temples. So uh, just just to warn any of you who think you might try and emulate Paul in that way. Other comments, questions, responses, please. David Ray. Thank you. Thanks very much for your talk. Um, a lot of things I could ask about, but a thing that stuck with me was the, this early question that you talked about in your in the days when you were interested in Taoism, this question, what is a human being? I wondered like what what that question was uh, what was about for you. Was it, you know, a, a human being in the sense of are, why, why do we have human limitations or humanity as a standard or, you know, achievement or kindness or other, other things like that? Or, um, and, and also, if that question is alive for, for you now, it, it occurs to me, I don't, I don't know anything about um, whether, whether, our, whether, whether our shared Buddhist tradition really says anything about, human, about a human being and what it means to be a human being. Well, I think that's what the what the eightfold path and the, and the precepts, which are basically part of the same thing, that's what, what the precepts is what it's all about. It's not that we we have a ten- tendency to think of the precepts as being some sort of admonitions, but actually it's just it's just a a a diagram of how to live your human life and a way in which Buddhas appear. Um, so it is it is it, it is just exactly it, it is what it means to be a human being is 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 basically the the eightfold path or the or the precepts um it's, it's just a, a an outline a, a life outline um that's so why i think it has everything to do with with what it means to be a human being just without really saying the word right i mean I, i'm just there's right does am, am i wrong or does does buddhism talk about being a human being explicitly in those on the, in those words, or I mean, it, it makes total sense that the that the eightfold path is a is is a you know like a roadmap for 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 being the kind of being we beings we are, and human is a word for that. So maybe maybe it's just as just as straightforward as that. Well, that's that's, that's my that's my interpretation. I mean, that's what I put together. You know, that, that, that's that was my early question, and it's and it's and. And I see that um, we've been studying, Taigen and I have been studying the precepts with our teacher, uh, uh, 
the tension Roshi in, in the Green Gulch, and it's becoming more and more obvious that that's what the what the precepts what the precepts are all about is is a is how to is how to live a life in which Buddha appears. Thank you. If I might add to that, um, there are numbers of roadmaps uh, or scenarios for what it means to be a human being in Buddhism. For example, the paramitas or transcendent practices. Uh, there are lots, many, many lists of qualities. Uh, and I think it's also, you know, what Paul talks about in terms of Japanese culture is there's a, this context in Chinese and Japanese culture of uh, Confucian ideas of a person. And that's it. That's in Buddhism, too. And there's also many, many of the Zen teaching stories or koans that are uh, that illuminate um, how to be a human being. So it, it, it's in, it's in there. It's not maybe spoken of in the same way it would be spoken of in a Western context, but it's there. Anyway, I'd like to encourage the concept because I think that Buddhism has a lot to has a lot to teach the universe about how to deal with the coming, the coming, the coming, the coming. I don't want to put too too strong a word on it, but I mean the coming disaster that global warming is bringing on us. Anyway, we, we're going to have some rough rough weather to to, uh, to to deal with, and I think that Buddhism has. A lot to say about how to deal with it. Oh, actually, could 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 you say what? Uh, could you say a little more about what Buddhism teaches us about how to deal with it? Because to me, uh, you know, the end of the world uh, in the short term, I, I don't see how that could be have been contemplated by the ancients. Uh, yes, there was a lot of chaos, there was war, there was this, there was that, but I, I don't think there was the, that this kind of threat. Well, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a Buddhist scholar, so, but I know, I know that there are certain schools of Buddhism and there are certain that have a timeline understanding of, of, the, of the, the swelling and shrinking of, of humanity and the future Maitreya Buddha that's coming to... to to, to fix things. Anyway, um, it's not something that we talk about in Zen, and I was never had any direct teaching about it, and I never read any, I don't, I mean, it's that you, Tiger, maybe would know more about that subject or where to find that answer, but uh, yes, there is, there is some understanding about that, um, uh, but it's, but it's not, it's not, it's definitely not part of our Zen, te- our, our Zen teaching. Our Zen teaching is now, all about now. But now includes everything. It includes the limitless past and the limitless future. So um, it's it's um, kind of the same thing. I could add some to that, but I, uh, I, I know Joseph has his hand up and we'll call on you. But just first in response to Aaron, um, I, maybe I disagree with we've talked about this i disagree a little bit with paul or i would say it a little differently i think that part of our practice is not to try and fix the world but to respond you know bodhisattvas try and respond to the suffering and uh, there are ways in which to see what's happening with 
uh, climate destruction um, as a as a practice. And, uh, I sent out to some people at Joanna Macy's uh, talk about uh, climate change as a spiritual path. Um, I don't know if this is Zen or Buddhist, but it's, you know, we don't have to stick to traditional ideas of Zen or Buddhist. Our practice tells us how do we respond, not to try and fix everything, because of course, as Paul says, that's impossible. But we can't, we, because of the second noble truth that everything uh, is, that there is a cause to suffering, everything we do can make a difference. And everything that happens, including climate disaster, has causes. So our efforts are, are, you know, what Paul's doing with trying to support uh, sustainable and businesses that don't waste things uh, in in his compound in Oakland is a good example. There are things that we each can do, each in our own context, to try and support um, sanity and a response to everything that's going on, all the different calamities that are going on. Um, And, you know, it, you, Aaron, you say this is not something that that was faced by uh, Buddhist, Buddhists in the past, but actually at many times in the past uh, in, in Buddhist cultures, they thought things were really terrible. Um, so uh, in Dogen's in Dogen's lifetime, for example, Dogen, the, the 13th century founder of our branch of Zen, Soto Zen, um, there were there was civil war and there were corpses uh, littering the streets of Kyoto. I mean, so there, there have been dramatically terrible times. Uh, I think what we know about climate, what we know about, uh, you know, systemic racism and all the other things that are, that are besetting us now, as Paul referred to, um, it's not that we, we can't fix them, but it's not that we just, passively ignore everything we can the bodhisattva idea is that we uh, make an effort as paul is doing in oakland to to be helpful and how all of our collective efforts at the butterfly make an uh, make have an effect is something that we can we can witness and uh and encourage so that's part of the bodhisattva precepts in a, in a way thank you anyway i i I use the word fix because as part of my social engineering upbringing and, and heritage, and, and I can't, I still have it stuck there in my brain. And Tiger is, of course, right. We're not, we can't fix anything, but it's still, it's still, it's still there in the back of my mind. So uh, I want to call on Joseph, who set his hand up for a while, and welcome, Joseph. I think this is the first time I've uh, you've attended, or I haven't seen you before. Anyway, welcome. Yes, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Thank you as well, Paul. I appreciate your talk. To uh, David's question about Buddhism's view on the human condition, I think uh, ancient Buddhism, with the backdrop of samsara, rebirth, redeath, reincarnation, enumerated a wide variety of potential rebirths, different realms of consciousness, And it was always the view that being born a human was the best option. And it was the most precious birth because humanity, while being defined by suffering and torment throughout 
the entire lifespan is also the most adaptive and responsive and open form of consciousness to either achieving a higher state of awareness or moving toward a eventual enlightenment so that the state of human uh, beingness, while it's not explicitly talked about as much in Buddhist philosophy, I think it has a, a, a bent towards really being grateful that through any option of being born, being born a human is by far and away your best bet. Yes, that's, that's very true that, that humans, humans have the, have humans have the option. This is somewhat controversial, but I, I agree that humans have the ability to, to see things that don't exist. And they're not so they can they can imagine a state that is not just their karmic their karmic trail. They can imagine a state that's not just what they're led to by the next the step they took before. And so most animals don't animals and, and, and ghosts and hell realms don't have that option and and divas and, and gods don't have that option because they're 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 too caught up in, in their own realm and they're but humans have the option of being able to see uh, outside their 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 karmic their karmic pull, which doesn't necessarily happen that often. But it is the option is there, and, and we do have codependent gener- uh, generation where you have both 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 your environment and your your, your heredity uh, uh, plays plays on you. So humans are are humans have a special place. And it's, and it's something not to be wasted. Thank you, Paul. Other uh, responses, questions, comments? Uh, I will, I, I'll hold off to see if anyone else wants to talk, but I, uh, otherwise um, I don't want to waste this precious... Q&A. I'll call back on you in a second, Aaron, but I did want to say okay. one thing about Suzuki Roshi's teaching. Um, when Paul was there in the early years of Suzuki Roshi's teaching at Tassajara, uh, the main teaching was about emptiness and not to, and, and, and that's very valuable for us now. So I really appreciate Paul expressing that to us. But uh, just from the work of David Chadwick, uh, who's not only wrote the biography Crooked Cucumber about Suzuki Roshi, but has archived and chronicled all of his uh, talks. Um, We know that later Suzuki Roshi talked about the harmony of difference and sameness. He did did a whole lecture series on that. It's something we chant sometimes, uh, which is about the integration of the universal and the particular, to put it that way. He also did a series of talks on the Lotus Sutra, so um, Suki Roshi's early teachings about emptiness are valuable, but he did branch out a little bit. And unfortunately, he, he passed away way too young. Um, but we can look at um, Paul and David Chadwick and uh, Ed Brown and, and Tenshin Roshi and other uh, direct disciples of uh, Suzuki Roshi to get a sense of uh, who he was in a very dynamic way. So... Thank you, Paul, for your for your uh, sharing your your uh, 
sense of your teacher. Uh, I see Dylan has his hand up and hasn't spoken yet. That actually reminds me, so I've got two brief comments that um, uh, I remember at a, at, a, uh, at a retreat in Minnesota that I went to uh, that uh, attention was leading. Somebody asked him about how he felt when uh, Shinri Suzuki, Suzuki passed away. And from what I remember of what he said, the, the thing that struck me was that he said that there was a... Uh, you know, a, there's a part of him, of, of, of Shinra Suzuki, that was practice, that was like, uh, that, that, and so that in his, in his dedication to practice intentions or in hours, that, that forthright um, determination to practice, that, that, that felt like his spirit, you know, was, was, was present in a way, you know, obviously he was also, it was real that he died, you know? Um, so that, that was a, a uh, just a recollection from tension that um, that's the best of my memory about what he said that felt important. Um, my question is, I was at the bookstore the other day, <clears throat> a new one that I hadn't seen been to yet. <clears throat> and I came across this book um the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life by Shanti Deva, and this is a question for Taigen and, and uh, Zengyu. Just uh, any any anything you know about this book? As I'm diving into it, I, I've heard it referenced once or twice before, but it looks pretty appealing to me, and um, it has some flavor of the Flower Ornament Sutra to me a little bit. But uh, I think it's composed by around like some elements are maybe from the, around the same time. But just any any. Uh, any knowledge you have, either of you, on uh, that that poem? I could say a lot, but uh, Paul, do you want to? No, I, I don't have. That's not. It's outside of my my. my I've, I've never studied it. Well, yeah, it's not a traditional Zen text, but it is a very important text in Bodhisattva uh, Buddhism. It's so Shanti Deva lived. Uh, uh, I forget the which century it was. Sometimes I forget which century this is, but anyway. The 8th century, um, I think it is, like 7, 750, something like that. Okay, thank you. Yeah, he, he was a very important early uh, Indian teacher of uh, about uh, Bodhisattva practice, and basically that book is structured on the, uh, I believe, the six paramitas or transcendent practices. And some of what he says about it, about them is seems extreme to us now, but um, he was an interesting character. His story is interesting, and it's a it's a text that a lot of people, uh, including Zen people, have uh, benefited from. So uh, uh, please uh, enjoy it. <laughs> and Douglas has something to add about it. Yeah, I mean it, it's a it's a beautiful and inspiring work, and it's been especially important in Tibetan traditions, especially the practice of exchanging self for others, which is a major Tibetan practice, but also Norman Fisher has written a book about that and spoke about it when he visited us in Chicago back on Irving Park. But also Sarah Lytle wrote her dissertation about the Bodhicaryavatara, and you might want to talk to her. Yeah, I've met her. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll. <laughs> Actually, Sarah did something really interesting. She went to the University of Chicago Divinity School, studied Buddhism as a as a study, but also was worked uh, 
uh, studied uh, uh, chaplain work, and she's actually a full-time chaplain now at a hospital in Chicago. But she, her, dis, her uh, thesis was about how Shanti Davis' teaching applies to chaplain work. So it was very, very interesting. Um, and we have a number of people in our sangha who've done who do chaplain work. I don't see any of them here right now. But anyway, um, so uh, that's in response to Dylan's question. Uh, Aaron had something else he wanted to say. Um, I just. I, I guess every, you know, probably we're, you know, to the extent that we're all been keeping track of the news, um, that today is like the day that, uh, and for Paul, since he brought up care of creation, care for the, care for the environment, um, you know, today is a day where the flames of the complex fire are lapping at the, you know, at the, uh, the grove of 2000 ancient sequoias, including what's said to be the largest tree in, on the planet right now, uh, the so-called uh, the General Sherman. And uh, well, anyway, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to keep doing Zazen and, uh, you know, hope for the best. But I feel a particular sense of powerlessness um, you know, and, and and just being a spectator in all of this. And so I just want, you know, to the extent that anyone of us cares to talk a little bit more about that. Paul, those, those uh, groves of ancient trees are not, are a little bit North of you. Do you want to say anything? Well, yes. Uh, anyway, it's, there are a number of things that could be said. Number one, the, the news reports are usually quite different than what's actually happening. The other one is that those trees have survived fire for many years. And the other one is we need to investigate what, what it is in our, in our human life, why we are, why we are experiencing this, uh, this, this great change in our environment. And I think we need to take a I think a, a thorough and, and deep look at just exactly what it is, how we participate in, and how we are responsible and, and, and participate in this in this great change, and uh, I think that's a subject of great study and debate, and certainly not time now. But I think I think it's important for us all, all to look into that and see just how how we're all all are a part of it. We're not separate from it. Thank you, Paul. I agree totally, but I'll just uh, add that uh, Aaron spoke of powerlessness. And I think right now, uh, feeling overwhelmed and feeling despair and feeling hopeless is kind of something that's being promoted by the fossil fuel companies who were responsible in, in large part, as well as all of us, for what's happening. So, uh, uh, feel, feeling doom is like the previous uh, uh, climate denial. So uh, we don't know what we can do, but I think uh, what Paul said, looking at how this is a function of, of human beings is one thing. Talking about it, just talking about it. So that's the main thing that I feel that I have tried to do, just to make to raise awareness that this is happening and then to respond um, to the politicians who were given large, large sums of money by the fossil fuel companies, um, uh, who, you know, the, the ExxonMobil 
did scientific studies that maybe you all know I've talked about this in the 70s uh, that showed that this was going to happen. And they knew it. They knew about climate damage. And instead of trying to respond and diversify to uh, the, the alternative energy systems, which are now economically much very competitive or, or superior to, the, to fossil fuels. Instead of doing that, they spent billion, millions of dollars uh, trying to promote, uh, you know, climate change denial. So um, we, all are, we all are responsible, as Paul said, as human beings. And also we can look at the particular causes and conditions and then respond to that. And, and uh, so writing letters to corporations or congresspeople might might be one bodhisattva practice. But yeah, how do we pay attention to, to all of this is, is important. Thank you. Thanks. So it's getting along in the morning. Um, Paul, thank you so much for all the uh, topics that you raised Um and and just for the history lesson about our about our lineage, um, one one thing to say about precepts: the precepts are a, and this is something that Tension has talked with us about. The precepts are, in some ways, we think of as guidelines to how to act in the world. They're also just um, connections to uh, the lineage of Buddhas and Buddha's family. And so, uh, there's a way that all of us here even if you're here for the first time, are part of this Buddha family. And so uh, how, we, how we express that is complicated, obviously. Um, so uh, if there's, is there anybody else, something else they want to add before we do our closing chant? I don't see any hands. So after the chant, we'll do announcements. But there's one announcement I wanted to make before we do the closing chant. Uh, Douglas Floyd, who's our lay uh, practice teacher, uh, I did a ceremony with him in November of lay entrustment, which is not the same as as, uh, Dharma transmission, and it's for people who haven't been priest-ordained. But I did that in November, and uh, finally... uh, after that ceremony we did on Zoom with people questioning him and responding to him, um, uh, Douglas finished his Roxu and I finally finished calligraphing it and he's wearing it today. So I wanted to say congratulations to Douglas before we do our closing chant. And it's a green Roxu. This is something that's developing in Soto Zen now that there are blue Roxus like, like, uh, Dylan is wearing for lay uh, ordination. There are black roxus for priest ordination. This is for Dharma transmission. But now we have green roxus. If you want to hold that up, Douglas, just for for a lay entrustment. So that means that Douglas is authorized to lead Zen groups and to guide uh, Zen students. So thank you, Douglas. So um, uh, I appreciate Paul talking about emptiness and, and uh, Suki Roshi's teaching of emptiness. And we're going to now chant the Heart Sutra, which is about form and emptiness. So David Ray, please. Yes. So first I'll uh, mute everyone 
And um, before we chant the Heart Sutra, we'll uh, chant the repentance verse um, three times. And I'll have to pull out of uh, a full screen because I'm going to share a very nice audio file of the Heart Sutra made by members of the Sangha. So with all of that... All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Heart of Great Perfect Wisdom Sutra. Without hindrance, there is no fear far beyond all in 
Gita and thereby attain unsurpassed, complete, perfect enlightenment. Therefore know the Prajna Paramita as the great miraculous mantra, the great bright mantra, the supreme mantra, the incomparable mantra which removes all suffering and is true, not false. Therefore we proclaim the Prajna Paramita Mantra, the mantra that says Gate, Gate, Parate, Parsam Gate, May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness we have chanted the Heart of Great Wisdom Sutra. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri, to the well-being of all those afflicted with ills, and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, Gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaprajna Paramita.